Right, that's called Orla. The fourth year, there's a special halacha also in the Chumat that you have to take the fruit to Yerushalayim and eat them there. That's called Netarubai. Right, then, then the fifth year, everything is regular. You just pluck the fruit off the tree. And you do whatever you have to do, but you can, you can eat it. So again, you have Orla, the first three years. Then you have the fourth year is Netarubai. And then the fifth year is regular. You could just eat the fruit, eat the fruit of the tree. So the psukim, here are the psukim. Uh, so there are many, many halachot that are called Hilchot Eretz Yisrael or halachot Kluyot Ba'aretz, these agricultural laws. Now it's not clear, perfectly clear, at least the Chachamim, did not think it was perfectly clear whether the Pasuk means only in Eretz Yisrael or that this prohibition begins after you come to Eretz Yisrael and that it might be effective even in Chutz Laaretz right, in Eretz Yisrael and it's not clear from the Pasuk it either means in Eretz Yisrael or it means from the time you come to Eretz Yisrael Kitabor Laaretz Right, you plant fruit-bearing trees, trees that have the kind of fruit that you can eat. So you have this word areh, right? This word areh, uh, which Rashi will explain to us. Rashi will explain it. So we'll just wait a minute to finish the first For three years, the fruit is in this category called Arelim. Right? You can't, can't eat it. Lo ye achel. You can't eat it. You can't eat the fruit that grows on the tree for the first three years. Rashi. Aratim orlato. Vatantem atimato. It's like uh, to stuff something up, to cover something up. And that, uh, that's, that's the general meaning of the word arla, which is used in a variety of contexts. Everybody knows that the, uh, that the uh, circumcision removes an arla. Arla is what covers up something. So that if the Pasuk in the Torah says, that it's like it means that your, your heart is not able to repent, to do tshuva. You can't become good. There's something stopping you. Right? So the word orla is used in a variety of contexts. That's all I meant to say. So Rashi says that it means generally speaking, it's covered up, stuffed up, and you can't derive any benefit from it. Okay? You can't derive any benefit. That's what orla the word Arla means, and that's why the word Arla is used to describe these uh, these fruits which you cannot, you can't benefit from. Well, the uh, it's, it's a pkak, you know, something stopping you from getting any benefit. 
the word Hana'ah in Hebrew means benefit. Sometimes the Hana'ah also uh, comes with pleasure, but like if you eat, or uh, but what it really what it really seems to mean is you get benefit. You benefit from that's what Hana'ah is. Then the pasuk says Shalosh Shalosh Rashi says interestingly Me'ematai Monelo. How do you count the three years? How do you count the three years? Misha'at netiyato. The answer is, so the time you plant the tree in the ground. It's a problem, lahalacha, like you have a tree and it grew in one place a little bit, like the tree's been in the ground for a year. And then you move it to another place. So, you know, every gardener in Israel knows these halachot. So you have a problem if you move the, the tree from this place to that place how do you count for three years do you just add one year plus two years or does the counting start over again right so that's what Rashi is talking about he says and he answers you have to start counting when you plant the tree what happens if I take the fruit off the tree in year one or year two and then hatsni I I put it away someplace, I hide it. I hide the fruit. Then after three years, right, Maybe that's what the Pasuk means. The Pasuk means a Shaloshanim Arilim. But after three years, the very same fruit that was in this category of Orla now becomes non Orla. And you can and you can eat it. I mean, the fruit is still around. It it is as it was. It remains as it was. You see the next pasuk, It says on the fourth year it will be, it will be, and then it says uh, uh, in the the previous pasuk, According to Rashi, means. It remains that way forever. It's Allah forever. You can never eat the fruit. For example, uh, the fruit that grew on the tree in the third year, right? Can you eat that fruit in the fifth year? If you just leave it around, you freeze it, right? That's how. Preserve that's it. what. Right, but somehow, somehow preserve it. But you can't eat it anyway. It becomes asur behana'ah. That's what. That's what the, what it's called. So that's what uh, that's what Rashi says. Now we're up to the next pasuk. On the fourth year, all of the fruit that you collect on the fourth year, yeh, it uh, it has a different standing, right? It is kodesh, which means you have to apply certain halachot to it. It's special. Let's say kodesh is special. And then there's the word hilulin, which is very much like the word halel, right? To sing and praise God. Lashem. So how do you fit those words into like an idea? So Rashi explains, Yekopiria Kodesh, Kimaaser Sheni. Just like Maaser, what's called Maaser Sheni? There's Maaser Rishon, Maaser Sheni, Maaser Shlishi, Maaser Sheni, Shikatubo. Just like Maaser. So there's some kind of comparison that is made. 
just like Maser, so too Orla. Right, Neta Revai, I mean. Just like Maser, so too Neta Revai. How so? What's the comparison? The Kedubah Chol Maser Ha'aretz Kodesh Hashem Ma Maser Shini Nechal Chutz Lechol Mat Yerushalayim Elef Vipidyon Right, you can't eat the Maser Shini outside of Yerushalayim. You have to eat it in Yerushalayim. But we also know that you can do Pidyon. You can exchange the Maser Shini for money. Take the money to Yerushalayim, buy fruit, you know, the Maser Shini in Yerushalayim and eat it there. Because you don't have to schlep it. That's what Pidyon is. You have to schlep it from here to there. So, the, the Drashah says, the Orla, the Neta Revai, right? Remember, Neta Revai is the first year that you're allowed to eat it. Where are you allowed to eat it? Only in Yerushalayim. What happens about taking it to Yerushalayim? Well, I can do Pidyon, just like I do Maser Sheni. I can do Pidyon for this as well. And this idea that you take the Neta Revai to Yerushalayim, that's Hilulim Lashem. That's praising God. That's thanking God. Shenosei Shem Shem Beshevach Shenoso Shem Beshevach Olhalem. So. So that's what the Pasuk means. We see the Pasuk again. Let's look at the Pasuk. Show every eat. Yekol Piriyot Kodesh Hidulim Lashem. Kodesh Hidulim Lashem. You have to eat it in Yerushalayim. And this is something that is praising God. You actually praise God by bringing it, by bringing it all to Yerushalayim. Of course, of course, it's a little odd, isn't it? We all know that there's a halacha in the Torah, in Dvarim, which is not, not on the sheet, but I, I, I imagine everybody will remember. Called Bikurim. Called Bikurim. Bikurim is the first fruit. The first fruit, fruit that grows on the tree. There's a special obligation to bring it to Yerushalayim and then to, as we said in the Haggadah, to have this confession, which begins with the words, Arami Oved Avi. Which for some reason we also say on the night of Pesach in the Haggadah. Not for some reason, it's easy enough to think of what the reason is, but there are a lot of passages in the Torah that might have been selected. Uh, The the Chachamim, it's in the Mishnah. This is already in the Mishnah. It means a very early time in the world. People said, Arami Oved Avi. So that's what you say when you bring Bikurim. When you bring Bikurim, you say those words. That's the Hallel to Hashem. You say, I know that if not for God, I wouldn't have these apples. God took me out of Mitzrayim, and God brought me to Israel, and God enabled me to plant the tree, and God enabled the tree to grow, and there were no wars, and the thing stood. And so that's what I say when I bring, when I bring Bikurim. So when it comes to this apple, there are like two motifs. Right? Bikurim says... Bring the apple right away to Yerushalayim. Orla says, you can't bring the first three years to Yerushalayim. That's what, that's what Orla says. So you have this kind of, like I wouldn't say it's a conflict, but you have two motifs. Like why shouldn't you bring the first three years 
that are growing, the first year, year, three years of the growth of the tree, also teach a lot. There could be a din if, let's say, this, the stuff is not so good, it doesn't look so good, it doesn't grow so well. Okay, so exchange it for something else. You do some kind of a pidyon, and you bring nice fruit. I mean, what happens in the first three years? What happens in the first three years? You know that uh, the only thing, the only prohibition in the Torah against eating things that grow on trees is called Orla. And I think I mentioned to you, I think I mentioned to you in the past that there was this uh, a theoretical question about bananas. You know bananas in Hebrew? Bananot. There was this question about bananas. What bracha do you make on a banana? Now everybody knows if you ever seen a banana that it grows on a tree. Because if you ran into a banana, you would lose. And the banana would win. That makes it a tree. And, and so if it's a tree, the bracha, of course, should be baripri uh, eggs. Now, let's say we don't know what bracha to make on bananas. Right? We haven't got a clue. So, baripri eggs is the obvious bracha. But, and this vort is attributed to every segment of the Jewish community, the Datilumi, they attributed to Rav Kook, and the Haredim attributed to the Chazanish, which I guess means that everybody agrees that it's a terrific uh, idea. So they all agree that if the banana was a tree, you would never be able to eat a banana. Because as you know, the banana trees, they die every year. And then they grow back again with new bananas. So that means every banana would always be Orla if it was a tree. So that even though the Seichel, I mean not the Seichel, the, the kind of, when you look at it, it looks to you like a tree. The decision that it's not a tree is based on the fact that nothing that grows in the ground is prohibited by the Torah. Right? It's not like fish. There are fish that you're not supposed to eat. There are grasshoppers that you're not supposed to eat. I don't mean grasshoppers, but you're in that world of little things creeping around. There are things you're not supposed to eat, and there are animals that you're not supposed to eat. But there's nothing that grows in the... In the if I exclude things that are poisonous, which have their own, you know, which we're supposed to be able to figure out, I guess. I don't know how that fits into this part that I'm saying. But if you... Uh, we'll think about things that grow in the ground there is nothing prohibited so that Orla the whole idea of Orla is like a little strange it's a little strange but why should something that grows in the ground be prohibited like what was the point is there a point is there a kind of a point so here the Ramban the Ramban tries to uh, to deal with this problem the Ramban tries to deal in his way with the problem of uh, so that if we, if we if you go down in the Ramban about two inches uh, you see the, the, the sentence begins in Skira Katuf Atimut it was the Ramban basically agrees with Rashi that the word Orla means something covering up that's Atimut the word Atimut to stuff something up or to cover it up so he says in Skira Katuf Atimut you see the first on the first letter on the line 
is a hay with a closed parenthesis and then we skir we skir katuva timut bepriya ba betoch shaloshanim losro bahana. So he says the pasuk says it's also bahana. You're not allowed to derive any benefit or pleasure from the orla fruit. Lo yemer kain b'sha'ar isurei hanaa. But it doesn't use that word orla when it comes to other kinds of prohibited pleasure, prohibited things. Tibiat hapri betchilato. He says the beginning of the of the fruit when the fruit comes into existence in Hebrew the word patach to open is used. The smadar the flower that comes before the fruit uh, it opens up it opens up. So that's why why the words are used Arla and Petach. It means it's not fully developed. That's what the Ramban is saying. Physically, if he's a botanist or whatever you have to be to look at fruit on the tree, something. So, whatever it is, whatever it's not fully developed. That's the Ramban's idea. So the Ramban, what the Ramban is trying to say, what the Ramban is trying to say, that there's nothing abnormal about the Torah saying you shouldn't eat um, orla, because the orla is not really edible. That's the point that the Ramban is saying. It's not like the that the Torah, like just like you wouldn't eat the tree before there's a fruit. So you wouldn't eat a fruit before there's a fruit. Right? That's what the Ramban is saying. So the Ramban is saying it's, it's a perfectly reasonable kind of thing, which is like the Ramban, it's equal. I say this silently, the Ramban is saying, I don't really know why this is the case. Because if it were true that we don't eat orla because it's not edible, so we would figure that out on our own. The Torah doesn't have to tell us not to eat orla if, if we don't eat it because it's not edible. That would be a kind of a reaction, a natural reaction. We have, oh, the tree, we have to wait a couple of years till we get, which any, anybody who, de- who deals with that will tell you it's true. You don't get good fruit right away. It's only after a couple of years. So the Ramban says, well, that must be the reason. That must be the reason that we don't, uh, that we don't eat orla, because it's not edible. But of course, that's a kind of a problem because if it was not edible then nobody would eat it and you wouldn't need the Torah to tell you not to eat something that's not edible or something that doesn't taste good just as we know that, that you know you go to the shuk and you, you, like, you take the oranges and you look at them and you decide which are better and which are worse so certainly if they have fruits that are not edible nobody would buy them nobody would eat them so that's what, that's what the Ramban says then he goes on and says this he says Tama Mitzvah Hazot. Now, when the Ramban says Tama Mitzvah Hazot, you expect him to say something which will open up a kind of Kabbalistic idea. The Ramban didn't like the Rambam's position. The Rambam's position in the Moran Nevuchim is that like I'll say it this way. I mean, you know, different people will say it in different ways, but I'll say it this way. The Rambam's position in the Moran Nevuchim is it doesn't matter. No. Sorry. 
It may be that I don't know what the ultimate rationale for the mitzvah is. Right? I may not know what the ultimate rationale for the mitzvah is. However, however, there, there are practical advantages to doing the mitzvah. That was the point. That was the position of the of the Rama. So the Rambam would always look for a, a social advantage, a communal advantage, a health advantage. That all see, but that didn't mean necessarily that the Rambam thought that he was entering into the mind of God, so to speak. There could there was some other, you know, the, the divine reason was way beyond what we could we could understand. So here, listen to what he says. Tam a mitzvah hazot lechabed et Hashem mereshit kol tivuatenu mepriha eitz utvuat hakerem v'lo nechal mehem ad shenavi kol pri shana achat iludim Hashem. Again, the words lechabed et Hashem to give kavod to God mereshit kol tivuatenu the beginning of all the the, the produce the tivua priha eitz utvuat hakerem. Priha eats tuata keren velone chalmehem lono chalmehem. We should not eat from them. Achenavi kol pri shada achati lulim Hashem. So he's like avoiding this idea that there are three years and then another year. He just sort of saying, well, you know, we we follow God's instruction on this. Kavod Hashem. And we end up by praising God, by saying Hallel in Yerushalayim. That's a good thing to do. So that there was the essential issue of Orla. Like why did the Torah have to tell us not to eat the first three years is something that he's avoiding. Now he says it. So now how can you bring a carbon? I mean you can't even eat that fruit. You can't eat the fruit of the three years. So you're going to bring a carbon? You're going to bring a sacrifice to God in Yerushalayim of stuff that you can't even eat? No, I say, no, I would never do that. But all you need then is to say that the revive. In, in, in other words, if you have fruit that is not edible, okay, so don't eat it. Or if somebody wants to eat it, so eat it. But the halakha of bringing the fruit in the fourth year remains the same. And everybody knows that the trees don't don't produce good fruit in less than three years. So here you have the Ramban. You know, the Ramban is giving like a little pragmatic halacha. You say Orla means. It's no good. No good means don't eat it. No good, don't eat it means you can't bring it to your shalim and give it as a karma. No good, don't eat it, can't bring it to your shalim. So certainly there's no way to praise God. It's only when the fruit becomes edible, good, right? You get those red apples. Then you can go to your shalim and praise God and thank God with the fruit that you brought to your shalim. So, okay. So that's what the Rambam says. In this case, the, Ray- the Ramban doesn't mention the Rambam. The Rambam says exactly the same thing that, uh, that the Ramban says, or the opposite, depending on whether you like chronology or not. But that's, that's what he says. Then he goes on, and if you look five lines from the bottom, five lines from the so six lines from the bottom, two dots, Arav Natan Gamazetam Bemorin Vuchim, Kitamau Berova Mitzvot, Kayu Vichartumim Vulchashvim Bismanahu Mineki Shut. Yasu Otobe Eitneti Ata Ilanot 
ויחשבו כי בהם ימהר העילה נציג פריו, קודם זמנו הידוע במנהגו של עולם. So this is the Rambam. The Rambam had a thing with idolatry. Right? He didn't like idolatry. Even though the Rambam lived in a world that was populated by Muslims and Christians, and even though uh, both the Muslims and the Christians were also against idolatry, he was against the kind of idolatry that was in books. That, that the Rambam, the Rambam himself says, I learned all the books of, the, of idolaters, I wanted to make sure I knew, I knew what it was. So he said, he said something about idolatry. He said that, that the idolaters had some way, magic, applying magic to the tree, which would make the fruit of the first three years edible. Uh, uh, whatever. Right, that was idolatry. So in order to combat idolatry, the Torah said, don't do that. You just, you can't salvage the first three years. That's the end of it. So we see, and, and, and uh, so the Ramban says, okay, you know, like he seems to, to acquiesce. He says, you know, that's true, that's true. That's also a reason. But the Ramban does not offer us an alternative position. Does not offer us an alternative. So we learned a little bit about about uh, Orla. I want to remind you that if you look at the next the next uh, section, Hakadosh Baruch Hu says to Avram Avinu, "Zot briti ashetish bru beiniu beinichem bein zarecha acharecha imolachem kol zarecha." This is the the mitzvah of mila of circumcision. Unamaltem. I mean, it's not our mitzvah. Of circumcision, right? It was the the Rambam points out. Everybody agrees that uh, in the parsha of Tazria, the parsha of Tazria, which is after Matan Torah, right? Tazria, Mitzorah, Achremot, Kedoshin. This week's Kedoshin. The parsha of Tazria, the third pasuk says, "Biyom Hashmini." Yimol b'sar orlato biyom hashvini on the eighth day. So everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that the reason that we do it is because is that pasuk, that pasuk which was given to Moshe Rabbeinu with Har Sinai, as opposed to the mitzvah that was given to Avram Avinu, which was carried down through his son Yitzchak and then Yaakov and then his children they were all circumcised but that's not why we circumcise uh, uh, children we do it because of the pasuk that was given to Bnei Yisrael after Matan Torah uh, an important distinction an important distinction so here are the psukim relating to God telling Avram Avinu that there's a Brit there's a covenant which is represented by Mila, by circumcision. Ben Shmonat Yamin, Yimolachem Kolzachaladorotechem, even though it says Ladorotechem, forever, you should do this forever, you lead by it, Umiknat Kesef, etc. Yimol, Yimol, you lead Beitcha, Umiknat Kaspecha, Vaita, Briti Bibsachem, the Britola, Varel Zachar, Arel. Arel Zachar, Arel, a male who is covered up. That's Orla. Asher lo yimolet besar Orla tov nechreta nefeshim amea et briti hefer. Okay, so there is this idea. Now you remember there's this discussion between Turnus Rufus and Rabbi Akiva. 
turns roof it doesn't sound like one of our guys he's one of, he's the, he's one of their guys Rabbi Akiva he's one of our guys so the question that Tunis Rufus asked Rabbi Akiva was, how come God created the world in such a way that it's not finished? Uh, his position was that circumcision implies that the world is not, not finished. And so there was this discussion. There was this discussion. Now, Chazal said without a doubt they were absolutely clear about this that Adam Arishon and Cain and Heaven shaped right, all the characters that we know about were all born circumcised something which I think is, is uh, uh, like a possibility there are children that are born circumcised in, in other words it's not an Arla it's not something covering the thing that's supposed to cover up it's just not there. Right? So, if you ask a male, he'll tell you right away. Well, what do you do? What do you do? Such a, just a, well, you know, it's called Hatafat Damgrit. In such a case, it's enough to take out uh, a bit of blood. Uh, a bit of blood from the, from the Eber Hamim. And that is good enough to do the mitzvah, to be Mekayim the mitzvah of Brit Milah. But, there is no doubt that it is possible, or it's, it, it happens uh, fairly often, that children are born circumcised. Chazal said, in the beginning, everybody was born circumcised. Everybody was circumcised. Until something happened. Until something happened, the question about what it was that happened is the question that we want to answer. So let's look. Let's turn the page and look at what the... Uh, what the Svatamet has to say. Here's an, an idea. Now you have to remember the Svatamet lived in the 20th century. We're now in the 21st century. But he lived in the 20th century not such a long time, not such a long time ago. So he says, by Midrash. By Midrash, this is in the beginning, in Vayikra Rabbah, this parasha. It says, Kitavo, quotes Apasuk. Right? Apasuk, Kitavo la Aretz. And then it quotes another Pa'unatatem, and then it says, Eitz Chaim Hila Machazikimba. That's what it says in the Medrash. Eitz Chaim Hila. When it says Eitz Chaim He, what are we referring to? What's Eitz Chaim He? The Torah. If you look in, in uh, Mishlei, you take the book of Mishlei, and you look at the first Pasuk in Mishlei, and you look at the Rashi of the first Pasuk in Mishlei. So Rashi says, Rashi says, all of these metaphors in Mishlei are about Torah, that's the good ones, and idolatry, right? Everything is Torah, everything is idolatry. That's what Rashi, that's what Rashi says. And then, so then, he, he says, Ayen Sham. I mean, you, you understand that the Svatamet figured that everybody knows the Medrash Balfet. Now listen, this is what he says. Ha'inyanhu. What's the, what's the, what's he going to explain? He has to explain what's the connection, what is the connection between Orla and Torah. Right? That's because that's what the Medrash says. But just by quoting two psukim, it doesn't say anything. If you look at the Medrash, you'll see, the Medrash doesn't explain it, it just quotes the psukim and goes on. So he says, Ainyanu, Kiguf HaTorah Nekra Eitz Chayim. He says, the Torah itself, Gufa Torah. A 
Thinking means the content, the total content of the Torah, as opposed to the, what we call the physical Torah. We talk about everything together. Nikra, Eitz Chayim. Okay, now, why should the Torah be called a tree? Why, of all the, of all the metaphors that you could imagine for the Torah, there are a lot of metaphors that are used, like Mayim. Mayim, water, is a metaphor for Torah. Right, there's Mayim Shem and Sof and Mayim Novea. There's a Mayim and it's, and it's kinds, of, kinds of Mayim, and it's all Torah. But why eights? Ukesh Moshe Ayu B'nei Yisrael B'Kabalat HaTorah Cheirut. He says, he says when B'nei Yisrael received uh, the Torah, they were free at that time. Kimo, Kimo. How were they free? How are they free? So here, uh, uh, the Gemara, this is the Gemara in Shabbat, the Gemara says, the Gemara says that when B'nai Yisrael stood at Har Sinai, they were like Adam HaRishon. They were all like Adam HaRishon. What way? What way were they like Adam HaRishon? Well, Adam HaRishon, was worthy of receiving the Torah. He didn't. God did not give him the Torah. But then something happened to Adam HaRishon, which ruined it for all the succeeding generations. All the succeeding generations were not worthy. But then, in Perik Shmot, Perik Yutet, there's a kind of process that B'nai Yisrael has to go through in order to be worthy of receiving the Torah, right? They have to clean their clothes, they have to go to the mikveh, they have to separate, men and women have to, have to separate themselves. All of this in order to, in order to make them worthy. And so, Chazal say in the Gemara, that B'nai Yisrael became like Adam HaRishon Lefnei Achet. Adam HaRishon Lefnei Achet, meaning there was no psychology. They, they, were, they were cleaned out of their psychological limits. Like, when they went to sleep before Mountain Terror, they said, oh, you know, I'm the son of other Marisha, the eight from the eight Sadas. I can't, it's terrible. I'm a terrible person, right? Then, before Arsinai, they were all good people. They, it was gone. The, the, the psychological inhibitions that were created by Adam Arishon disappeared. And that's what he that's what he's referring to. He says, He says, What represents Adam Arishon? Well, he says, because when he was alive and he lived in Gan Eden, there was no Orla. There was no such thing. How do I know? Rachain, we call Eitzagan. Achol tochal, that's what God said to Adam Rishon. He picked them up, and he stuck them in Gan Eden, and he said, enjoy, eat whatever there is. There was no distinction between the fruit that you're allowed to eat, and the fruit that you're not allowed to eat. And therefore, therefore the Tzvat says, Tzvat says that this halacha that we call Orla, this halacha that we call Orla, is secondary. It's not the way the world should be. The world shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't have Orla. You plant a tree, you should grow fruit, and the fruit should be edible. It should not be unedible, the unedible fruit. He says, he says, well, 
That's until the chait of Adam Arishon. After the chait of Adam Arishon, then before the chait of Adam Arishon, there was no Orlam Olam. We call Eitz Hagan Hutarlo Lechol Miyad. That's what it says in the Pasuk. We call Eitz Hagan Achol Tochal. Eat whatever you want. That's what God said to, to Adam Arishon. He didn't say to him, you can't eat Orlam. So there was no Orlam. There was no such, there was no such thing. Rak achakach al yidei achet shanach l'shuriim ba'olam apirud sheyesh tarov etov arab ba'olam. He says, "What was it that Adam Arishon did? He made a mess. He made a mess. The mess is a basic kabbalistic idea. There's a mess, and the mess is that the tovara are mixed together. So if tovara mixed together, it's not like basar b'chalav." Basar b'chalav you could deal with. Tovarai you can't deal with. You can't deal with the tovarai. Kids go by majorities. The only way to deal with the mixture of tovarai is to separate them. Is to take the tov out of the ra, the ra out of the tov, and then you get pure tov. You can get pure tov. So he says, he says, oh, that's olama peirud, sheyesh tarobet tovarai. You go back. There is this uh, this mixture of Torah and in the world. So the Torah gives us ideas. So how do you how do you deal with it? How do you deal with the fact that the tree is now producing Torah? You know, because of Adam Arishon. So, so what are we going to do? That's what the pasuk. Eitz chayim he lamachazikim ba. So, what's eitz chayim? That a tree could be a tree of tov. It could be the tree of tov if you just get rid of the ra, which is the orla. V'zeshamal lamachazikim. Even though it's not perfectly fixed yet, in order to uh, to lead uh, back to cleave to the eitzachayim, but because he desires, he has this will to cleave he gets a little bit of light out of this the Torah is an means he turns all the trees into the trees of Tov when, and, and, and changes the mixture of Tov that will right, changes everything into precious metal so what is it that the Swata met what does what the Swata met say the Swata met says anything now so if you talk about the creation of the world, there could never be Orla in the creation. Because there's nothing in the, in the grows in the ground which is forbidden. So there shouldn't be Orla. So the only way that Orla could get into the world is if other Mauritia put it into the world. So this is, a, this is a, 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 an interesting idea. You see the Rambam and the Ramban and Rashi uh, didn't even occur to them. Didn't occur to them to say something, something of that kind. 
but this is a, a, a different way of looking at of looking at it. I just want to finish maybe by just mentioning something that I always like to look at. That's Rav Nosson of Nemerov. Rav Nosson, remember the Talmud of Rav Nachman of Braslov, right? And you, you don't have to be a Braslover to like Braslov. Maybe. If you're not a Bratzel, you even like it, could like it even more, I think. So he says, it's not on the sheet, but, uh, but, uh, but I just think we have an idea. Just an idea. He says something. I mean, this is 200 years, 150 years before, 150 years before the Swata met. So it's earlier. <laughs> So he says exactly the same thing that the Swatamet says. I don't think Swatamet copied it from from this from this book, but it, it doesn't matter, maybe he did. But what is interesting is that he adds another idea. Here's another idea. He says there's another battle that we have. We have a, an ongoing battle. So when it comes to when it comes to eating eating food, when it comes to eating food, as the Ramban says in the beginning of the parashat Kedoshim, this is our parashat. The Ramban says anybody can understand that the Torah wants us to be very circumspect about eating. Because we don't feel it so much today. But I imagine, like in previous times, uh, if you want to eat a salami sandwich, you know how much effort has to go into getting that extra on that piece of salami? I mean, we don't do it. All we do is pay money. But somebody does it. Now, when you eat a, you go and eat by a, you know, a, a loaf of bread in the store and it has 16 hechsherim on it, so those 16 hechsherim, I mean, somebody is putting forth some effort, I assume. I'm not going to go check it out, but I assume. I'm getting my money's worth somehow on those, all those, all those hechsherim. So it's very difficult, it's very difficult to eat a piece of meat if you want to do the whole thing yourself. It's very difficult to eat a piece of bread if you want to do the whole thing yourself. It's very difficult to eat uh, to make a shmura matzah, it's just hard. I mean, whether we're being cheated or not is a different question. But it's hard to do it. It takes a lot of effort to produce a single shmura matzah. Okay, so maybe we go overboard. We don't go overboard. Pay too much money so that that according to according to Rav Nosson, there's another idea here that the pegam achilat aitzadat. That when he ate the, from the Eitzadah, whatever it was that he ate, like, uh, maybe it was an apple, maybe it was something else, whatever it was that he ate from the, uh, from the Eitzadah, so Rav Nelson says, well, what happened to that? What happened to that, whatever he ate? Forget about the idea, don't, don't forget about it, but I'm saying, irrespective of the idea that there's an Eitzadah, there's also something he ate. Well, what happened to the something that he ate? So he says, the something that he ate went into his physical self. It was as though he had given in to desire. Right? That was the apple. 
It's not only the desire to get the intellectual result of the etzadat, whatever that might be, but it's also the desire to eat. I guess the 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 etzadat, the apples of the etzadat, look good, or whatever it was that was on the etzadat. I mean, it looked it looked like it was enticing. I'd like to have one of those, a cheese danish. That's what I want to have. So besides doing something that was asur, it was pandering to his physical need to eat. To his phys- it was pandering to physical need to eat so that the, the way to overcome that, the way to overcome that, the Torah says, is to establish guidelines, not eating things that you're allowed to eat. The Ramam says this also about Nidarin. A person can make a nether, I'm not going to eat an apple. I'm not going to eat any apple. Me personally. This apple is forbidden to me. And the Rambam says, the Rambam says, the reason that you could do that is because very often you find that a helpful thing. You don't want to, you want to go on a diet, or you want to do something, uh, you know, it's not good for you to eat apples, you're allergic. So you can make a nether, and that'll stop you from eating, from eating this food. So the Rambam says, Abbasid says there's another side to what happened to Adam Arishon when he ate from the Eitzadat, Adam and Chava. Right? Something else happened. Besides the fact that he disavowed the divine command, besides the fact that he was going to get information on some idea that was going to be difficult for him to absorb, and he was warned about that, by uh, by a Kurdish book. Besides that, he also followed his desire. It was something that he wanted to do. He wanted to eat whatever it was that was growing on that tree. And therefore, Rav Nossin says, therefore Rav Nossin says, Orla is the, uh, is, is the way we overcome. We have fruit, we don't eat it. We have something, it's a tree, it grows fruit, just like the Eitzadat, just, not just like, but maybe in a similar vein. We don't eat the fruit, we don't eat the fruit on the tree. So the Svatamet took this idea, this general idea, that is represented already by uh, Rab Nasser, and, uh, and said that Orla, generally speaking, generally speaking, is kind of a response to Adam Rishon eating from the Eitzadat. Rav Nosson explains it, I think, in greater detail. He says, not only is uh, not eating a response to eating, but eating itself contains this danger that we have. That eating is about, about desire. It's about giving in to your desire. And so the Ramban, at the beginning of the parasha of Kiddoshim, he invents this concept which is Naval B'Shuta Torah. A person can be a very bad person and yet uh, uh, live according to the Torah demand. So even though the Torah doesn't want me to eat, overeat, to pig out, as they used to say. I don't know what they say today. The Torah doesn't want me to do, to do that. But if I have a lot of hechsherim on the food that I'm picking out on, I can't say that you're doing something asur. And if I can't say that you're doing something asur, the Ramban says, you're a naval b'shuta Torah. You're a bad person, kind of under the aegis, under the aegis of Torah. So that's what Orla is. The Svatamet, 
and Rav Nasser of Nemirov, they both agree that this is an extraordinary thing, right? That you can't eat something that grows in the ground, and that it's only a result of the chait of Adam Arishon that we carry around with us, because after the after Matan Torah, we reverted back to the way we were before, before we purified ourselves a little to receive the Torah. So we go on in this, we have this constant battle, we have this constant battle with ourselves, being good, right? And so being good has not only to do with uh, doing mitzvot, which today is uh, a lot easier than it ever was, I think, in previous generations, but we also have, we carry around with us the psychology of the Avera, of the transgression of Adam Rishon, which we uh, try to rid ourselves of in different ways. And Orla, according to these, um, to these mitzvot, is one of the ways, the mitzvot Orla is one of the ways that we could kind of do away with we could do away with our, uh, with our own psychology, with our own limitation, our own inherited, uh, the inherited avarice of other Marisha. Okay. Um, I, I, said, I said at the beginning that I, I don't really know what to say about Yom HaShoah. I think that, uh, I mean, if everybody in Israel uh, recognizes the day, so I think it's important to recognize the day, uh, I just don't know exactly how to uh, uh, integrate it with the way it's supposed to think about things. I don't know what it means. I uh, so so I won't say anything. You won't tell us how it might modify your understanding of God. I suppose. But you don't need the show out to modify the uh, existence of the standing of God. I mean, it is, uh, it has been pointed out that that it's, God has not made it easy. Uh, Burton Russell said that once. They said to Burton, and Burton Russell is a well-known atheist. I mean, well known in that he advertised the fact that he was an atheist. He was also a philosopher, a mathematician. I mean, he's a smart guy. I have a weakness for mathematicians. So anyway, Bertrand Russell, they said to him, well, what would you say if God came up to you and said, hello, I'm God? What would you say, Bertrand Russell? So Bertrand Russell said, I would say, you didn't give us a lot of information. <laughs> okay. Um, the Rambam would say no, because Rambam says explicitly in later years that you can know there's a God. That what? That you can know there's a God, not to be, but to know there's a God. Oh, I forgot you wrote that book. <laughs> okay, you can't, I, it's, I have a rule, I don't talk to people who wrote books on the subject. <laughs> I I don't know. I, uh, what do I know? What do I know? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I know my. When I was a little kid, my father said, "Let's go to shul." So that was it. Is it different? Is the show in effect brought to God different than God letting Cain murder Abel? I don't know. What do you mean is it different? If you, when, when Cain murdered Abel, the next thing that happened was they were all talking about it. <laughs> That's different. Wait, that they were talking about it. They got to Cain and said, where is Abel? 
that didn't happen at the Shoah. You mean? You ask me, is it different? I said, yeah, it's different because God was there. That's different. God was which one? there where? With Cain. With Cain. Yes. Ah, yeah. Where is your brother? Who said that? God said that. It's probably a rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's rhetorical, but it sounded, there was yeah. a sound to it. In the Shoah, that did not happen, to the best of my knowledge. Maybe it happened someplace, you know. But I don't know that it happened. So there's a difference. But of course, the Shoah took place 2,000 years after we became used to the idea that God, during those 2,000 years, we didn't have much expectation. I mean, it's all like we make judgments. Is this statistically possible? Or you did that in your book, right? Is this statistically, this is a very small number. What's the difference? I don't understand that argument. What does it make how small, the, how limited the chances is? If it happened, it happened. You know, it doesn't matter you put like a lot of zeros in front of a one. Oh, no, it, oh, that's, not, that's not quite accurate. I have for me saying so, but if, it, if it's statistically unlikely, then there's a strong chance that it didn't happen by chance. I'd be saying it, but if it did happen by chance, if it happened by chance, so it happened by chance. I mean, what, what could a statistical statement say about that? Not much. Because there's always some possibility. What's the difference if it's small? never says never. <laughs> I'm not sure this conversation... Uh, anyway, this is a... Uh, uh, in order to remember something, this I think is true, in order to remember something, it has to mean something. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to encapsulate it some way. So we're good at that. We remember Hanukkah, we remember Purim. Everybody has some idea. Like, you say Purim. It's a big story, Purim. But there's an idea that we can relate to people who we are discussing it with. I'm not sure that that's true about the Shoah. At least I do know that it's not true for me. But I don't have any, I don't get it. You know, I don't... That's if, a big idea. Okay, so no. that, yeah, so, yeah, but I don't want that to be the idea. I want it to be more something that I can, that's malleable, that I can employ for myself, make it into something, uh, you know, that I can, I can make it into, a, into an ethical position of some sort or other. But I don't seem to be able to do that. What about the Tokacha? What about Navi? What about... Um a lot of Tisha B'Av, what about Eicha, what about all of these events that we do find in the Torah, diaspora does have a significance. Diaspora? The Galut. No, I'm talking about God, I'm not talking about Galut. Well, God told us what happens when you're in Galut. God told us what happens when you don't act a certain way. God tells you that there's um, individual and, and and communal responsibility uh, there's a lot of things about suffering and punishment and not that we understand and not that A causes B and B causes C but the whole idea even of parents take, eating their flesh and, and taking babies and not giving them their flesh and that's, it's, not, it's not unknown in, in our scriptures I mean you call, that, you call that the Shoah I don't call it the Shoah I can't say A cause B I can't say these people after this way but the whole idea of suffering and galut and punishment and not living up to a certain standard all these things are found in the Torah how yeah. to actually put it all together and say you know, no, 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 but, but, but in the Torah it says if you do this, then God will do that. 
And so, okay, so I have a siman that God does that to me. And that's and what happens. And to Am Yisrael. And even not to specifically, even, so, even if you're living in a certain time in a certain place. And it's so complicated and it's not so easy to understand exactly well, how So there you happens. go, you're but, retreating. But God, but God does have guidelines and God does talk about behavior and God, and God does talk about suffering and God talks about terrible things happening. But the Shoah, if you, and, it's and not exactly will lay down Torah. And it talks about fire and furnaces and yeah. it's, it's a lot of things of the are found in our scriptures. The fact that we say that the Shoah is too far away and we can't understand it. I think that... What do you mean? What do you mean? It's too close. We can't understand it. It's too big. But I think that just like God's voice is heard in miracles and in the Six-Day War and when great things happen, I think God's voice is heard in the Shoah also. I don't think he, we're supposed to say, it's too big, we can't understand it. I think he's supposed to say, think about it, ask about it, try to grope with it, try to understand it. What can you do as an individual, as a people? It's God's voice. The Shoah is God's voice. It's not that God was Maybe it's and when such a cataclysmic thing happens to Am Yisrael, you have to relate to it. You can't just say it's too big, it's too far away. Some people, you know, reacted. I think it has to do with morality. I think it has to do with Eretz Yisrael. I think it has to do with, with Torah, really knowing God and really understanding God and trying to search God and being honest and real and and moral and business. And I don't know what, but... I, I, it's there, and it's 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 God talked to us. When the Torah takes a stand on the on the destruction. But that's what I want to say. Thank you. Did you record this? We recorded this. You're going to be all over the world. <laughs> I've been waiting for this day. <laughs> that's what you say now. Yeah. Okay. The Torah takes a stand, of course, centuries after the event. What what caused? The destruction of the temple, the destruction of the second temple was just a little bit less horrendous than the Akshara. Even the secular estimates are over a million people died in the second temple. So, and then it's going to say that it happened because of X, Y, Z. And they give a reason. What, a billion Jews died, you mean? Yeah, that's if I remember what I read at least 10 years ago, which is difficult to do at this stage. But, uh, yeah, there's a huge number. Sounds, a, sounds like an unbelievable number. Except the time of the year that it happened. What? Except for the time of the year that it happened, people were coming into Jerusalem. People were coming in with these, dis- with these destructions to try to make those wrong. But then the Talmud does make a statement about what he thought. In other words, eventually, Chazal were willing to say... <coughs> We're willing to say why they thought God destroyed the second temple and why God destroyed the first temple, even though it was done by other, you know, by God. I thought in my security I would never be shaken. We said every morning in Hebrew. Well, so, huh? but in Lamed. Lamed? Yeah, you know, in Italian Lamed, we said every morning. Oh. <coughs> um. The the way the way the world is presented to us. Uh, in the Gemara is that uh, that there are overt signs that God is in charge of the world like the prophecy of Yirmiyahu uh, in Bayat Rishon 
and uh, even Chagai Zechariah Malachi and the connection to the Beit HaMikdash there's more the evidence of the relationship between history and God is very um, patent I mean it's there it's just not there uh, in the same way in that way in modern times and most of what we call the Jewish people most of the people who are part of the Jewish people are not interested in the relationship of God and history to the, as far as I can tell I mean, I'm not out counting them but as far as I can see there are people who a lot of Jews who, are, who claim that they're Jews but they're not have no connection at all to this idea, this grand idea that we're living in a kind of a tension between God's will and our ability to fulfill that will. But most of the Jews in the world are not involved in that. Are not involved in that. And the, uh, uh, it's hard to say that, uh, that if, you, if you just kill everybody, that they're all the same, that everybody is the same in the eyes of God. It's, you know, if you say that, okay. If you think that's easy enough, so that's easy enough. But I find it difficult. But in any event, there's no doubt that the Shoah was, a, or the Shoah was a, an important uh, moment in reconstituting the Jewish people in Eretz Israel. I mean, I think that, that even Haredim could agree with that you know, if they were sober. Um, and so on that basis, I mean, certainly the tragedies of, the, the multiple tragedies, all the people who collected in Eretz Israel as a result of the Shoah, it's very hard to deny that we're all here together and that it must mean something. But the, all I meant to say was that it's not always clear to me how you determine that something is, you know, God's will. Even though you know the Hasidut, uh, you know the Ishbit said that everything is God's will. So that if I take a gun and shoot somebody, so the guy, so that's God's will. I, mean, I didn't do anything. Almost, I almost didn't do anything. So you say that about the about the Nazi killing machine. A little hard, to, a little hard, I mean, a little hard. Hitler survived 34 documented attempts on his life. Who? Hitler yeah. survived 34 documented attempts on his life. And it's therefore? Several of which people were killed right next to him. And therefore? That's so, the question. It's hard to think that God was watching. Well, obviously, it's hard. for sure God was watching. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, you can say whatever you want. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, in other words, it's not provable. So you can say anything. Okay. No, nothing. Nothing is. Nothing in our religion is really provable in a okay. scientific uh, laboratory. Uh, method is, that's what well, I would say. I would settle for a prophet. Just one prophet. Just one prophet. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, when is your mat's boat? Okay. Next Wednesday night. So what should we do? No, I, we can't do it next Wednesday night.